So we're going to talk about the um, notion of equality for the Buddha. So that is very central to uh, Ambedkarism, the idea that the Buddha was uh, an activist for egalitarianism. And the primary sources have a slightly different opinion on that. Oh, yes. Um, I gave an earlier version of this talk to the um, Indic Academy's conference on Western Buddhism. I don't think any conference proceedings or something are coming forth. Uh, so I'm happy to uh, uh, release this to the larger public through the present uh, medium, thanks to Sangam. Right, so uh, what about Siddhartha Gautama? Because that was his birth name. So he was an elitist, or with the usual Sanskrit term for that, an Arya par excellence. He was born as the Raja of the Shakya Republic. Now, Raja is usually translated as king, which is not a correct term in the case of a republic. Rather, he was the president for life. But anyway, he was the top dog. And so his son was already in a very advantageous position to become the next or a next uh, president for life. Moreover, he was very talented. He served in the Senate of that Republic since his age 20. He had the advantages of princely upbringing and so on. So uh, he could have made it. And indeed, he was uh, so talented politically that he was consulted throughout his life for political advice. Of course, also and especially for yogic advice, but lesser known also for political advice. And so um, that way he kept on fulfilling the prediction made at his birth, namely that he would either become a great ruler or a great sage. He chose for being a great sage, but you see, without being strictly a ruler, he did retain a certain political role in the background. So these are republics. There were 16 of them, I think, in ancient India. They are now often cited as proof that Hindu civilization is quite compatible with democracy that next to a number of monarchies, there were also republics. So yes, to some extent that is true. So they had a consultation in assembly. Everybody was welcome to attend the assembly, but only the Kshatriyas, the, the nobility, was meant to take the decisions there. Uh, it was a system with an elective rulership this is an Indo-European institution that pops up here and there elsewhere. Like in the Holy Roman Empire, there was a system of a rotating uh, emperorship among seven of the ruling nobles. So there were many nobles in little earldoms and dukedoms and so on. Seven among them were the Kurfürsten, the electors. And so they chose one among themselves to be the emperor. Then when the emperor died or abdicated, they had to choose a new one. So it was not automatically the emperor's son who became the successor. Anyway, so that institution existed there. 
And so it was certainly not a um, autocratic rule. And it was a relatively uh, relaxed system in which the Buddha had grown up and he also applies it later when he is organizing his own Sangha. Now to say that this is democracy or that this is equality is of course a projection of modern ideas onto ancient times. Even within his uh, monastic order that he founded later, principles of seniority were important, how long you had been a member, and of course, remainders of the social standing that existed in society was strictly abolished, but still kept on playing a role. So it's not really full equality, but it's, it's, it's about the closest you can get in those circumstances. So in modern India, Buddhism has been captured by people who want to promote caste equality or who want to advocate the interests of the Dalit castes. And the result is that uh, a lot of injustice is being done to original Buddhism which is uh, quite uh, different, doesn't have that emphasis on social reform at all. Indeed, uh, when Dr. Ambedkar embraced Buddhism in 1956, he also wrote this book about the Buddha and his Dharma. And that book was not well received in traditional Buddhist circles. So there was a, a magazine from Sri Lanka that did a review which said, yes, Ambedkar is no doubt a great man, but this is not a great book. And so by emphasizing the supposed social message of the Buddha, he just misses the point about what, what Buddhism really says, what it has been teaching people for 2,500 years. So, so let's focus on what the Buddha really says and, and how this uh, relates to the modern Indian version of uh, Buddhism. So what about the Buddha himself? Well, he was an elitist par excellence. He um, was very well placed for a career in the Shakya Republic. He was the son of its own president for life. He was a member of its Senate. He was, of course, a member of the, the, the aristocracy, the, the Kshatriya caste. And so that's what he could have done. And to a little extent, that's also what he did, because he remained very much in demand for political advice. You see, of course, as a spiritual teacher principally, but also for political advice. And uh, we will see a few instances here. So he could have focused on that. Instead, he became first a yogi and then a yoga teacher. But nevertheless, his uh, social teaching is somewhat relevant. I guess you can send this uh, PowerPoint also to uh, all the people watching. Um, so this uh, merely reaffirms that... Uh, this uh, Republican system in India was a traditional system. Modern Indians like to boast that, unlike many other countries, they have had a certain democratic tradition next to a monarchical tradition, and that's true. Though we shouldn't uh, 
project too much modern ideas on the, the caliber of the Republican rule at the time. It was not a modern democracy, really more an aristocratic rule, but it has a, it had a great division of powers. It, it had a system of uh, consultation. So it was, it was protected against some of the dangers that you have in the monarchical system. So he was at home in that system and he would also advocate it the few times that he's asked for political opinions and he will apply it also to his own monastic organization or Sangha. So the Buddha uses the word Arya all the time. And many Hindus think that this had the meaning of noble in the usual metaphorical sense of being magnanimous, uh, being dutiful, and so on. Very uh, positive, uh, laudatory term for someone's character. Now, that's only a metaphorical meaning. It really means someone of the nobility class. Someone who is high placed due to his birth. And um, therefore, when the Buddha uses this term, you should again be wary of projecting modern meanings onto ancient terms. So the Buddha taught the Chatvari Arya Satyani, that is to say the four noble truths, and the Arya Ashtangika Marga, the noble eightfold path. And his entire teaching is often called the Arya Dharma, the uh, noble uh, teaching. And so that might mean noble in the modern sense, but there are strong reasons for referring the ancient and largely social, uh, sociological meaning, namely upper class. Elite. So, uh, how do we know that? Namely, one of the meanings of Arya is also, this is to make it even more complicated, one of the meanings of Arya is also Vedic. You see, the original meaning of Arya in the Vedas, that's the farthest we can go back. You know, we can speculate about what Arya meant even earlier, but in the Vedas, it has the meaning of our uh, compatriots, of us as against them, of our people as opposed to foreigners. And so, you see, most people on earth think about their own crowd as the, the norm, as normative, and the rest as more or less deviant from that. In some cases, even not deemed to be fully human, at any rate, somewhat inferior to us. And this much at least is true that among foreigners, you will find yourself less at home than among your own kind. Now, the writers of the Vedic uh, hymns were members of the Paurava tribe, the descendants of Puru. And so they apply this to themselves, as uh, Sri Kantalageri has shown. 
every reference in the Vedas to Arya is to a Puru, is to a member of the Paurava tribe. Even when something negative is said about them, like when they when they are traitors, when they make common calls with the enemies, they are still Arya. And so then they, it doesn't mean noble, it means us. And if somebody from another tribe comes to their help or does somehow something that deserves sympathy, he is still not called Arya. No matter how noble and generous and so on he is, he will never be called Arya. So there Arya simply has the ethnic uh, self-designation sense of referring to ourselves, to the Pauravatra. Then the Vedic tradition becomes normative for the surrounding tribes. And for them, therefore, Arya acquires the meaning Paurava, that is to say them, not us. And specifically the meaning Vedic. You see, when do they have anything to do with the Paurava tradition? Well, when they are reciting the Vedas or referring to the Vedas. So their Arya gets a different meaning, namely Vedic. You find this meaning back in the 19th century reform movement, the Arya Samaj, which means the Vedicist society. And so in the Buddha's time, that meaning was very well known. And so you, you also find it, for instance, in the name of the Brahmin castes that migrated to South India, the Ayars and the Ayangars. You see, that's a sort of corruption of the word Arya. And so the people who brought the Vedic tradition to South India, who were invited by South Indian kings to bring in the Vedic tradition to give more prestige to their dynasty, they use the word Arya in the meaning Vedic. In a way, the, um, the Buddha does, does define his own teaching as Vedic. Now here, and, and you know, <laughs> at this point I'm going to diverge quite far from the, what I put in the PowerPoint, but it's important. The status of the Vedas, you see, too many Hindus are too literalist about the Vedas. For them, the Veda means that the, the, the shlokas, that, well, Vedic nature is not really shlokas, anyway, the verses that you recite. And yes, it's important that we keep in mind that literal sense. Nevertheless, the Vedas simply mean a certain attitude, a certain way of life. Uh, it means conversing with the gods. It means being busy with religion rather than with the ordinary events of life. And so it is in that general sense that the Buddha is going back to the Vedas. You see, what he sees around him is still Vedic, but veering rather far away from the Vedas. And so, you see, in human history, this is a recurring thing that people say, oh, we have to go back to the roots. You know, if you look in, in Europe, the history of Christianity has a whole list of uh, people who were going back to the roots. 
you know, who, who's talked about a first evangelization, a second evangelization, a third evangelization. And so this is so normal. And in Vedic history, similarly, you have people who go back to the Vedas. The Arya Samaj in the 19th century was not the first one to do so at all. And so in a way, you see, one of the layers of meaning of the word Arya also, and especially for the Buddha, is Vedic. But Vedic in a general sense. You see, what is the relation of the Buddha to the Vedas? As uh, an upper class person, he must have learned quite a bit of Vedic lore during his upbringing. And indeed, he refers a few times to the first Upanishads, not by name, but he takes ideas from them. You can also see in his discourse that he has kept a number of thought forms that are typical for the Vedas, typical rhetoric from the Vedas that he also uses. So yes, he was conversant with the Vedas to some extent, but he was not a Brahmin. He was probably not uh, in the business of reciting the Vedas. He must have studied Sanskrit, but there's no sign that he spoke Sanskrit. If he gave his discourses in the vernacular and not in Sanskrit, some Buddhist separatists say, oh, this means he was against Sanskrit. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that he was practical. His audience didn't speak Sanskrit for the most part. He himself, maybe some broken Sanskrit, sort of like, like me. But you see, he did not make a choice. Okay, am I going to speak in the vernacular or in Sanskrit? Oh, I'm going to choose against Sanskrit. No, that's not the situation at all. He simply wanted to communicate his ideas and his audience spoke the vernacular. And he, of course, himself also spoke the vernacular far more fluently than Sanskrit. And so that was the obvious choice. Okay. But nevertheless, with the Vedic ideas in general, he was conversant. And so they are much simpler than what they had become later on. Uh, like, for instance, uh, this is a bit of a, well, a little obsession of mine, but I'm going to voice it anyway. I think it's pertinent. The Vedas should not be seen as a divine revelation. You see, some people really crawl, you see, with a heavy weight on their back, you know, that's the Vedas. You know, they have been like uh, thrown over mankind by someone up in heaven. No, no. You see, they are completely natural poetry, very good poetry, technically speaking. Very good poetry, but nevertheless, they're a human artifact. And so they contain lofty ideas, good ideas, great ideas, but human ideas. And so the Buddha takes it up from there. Whereas around him, many people have started this literalism, this worshipping the Vedas. And so that's not how he sees the Vedas. And that's like that's simply a, a grown-up attitude. So he proceeds from where the Vedas left off, so to speak. But he doesn't extol the Vedas like many Hindus have come to do.
Okay, so the word aria, what does it mean? So I think the general sense of noble is only a sideshow to the, the meaning that he really has in mind, which is high class. We'll come to those quotes. There's also the caste system. And the, um, the, the usual interpretation by those uh, Ambedkarites is that Arya really means upper caste. And that's also one of the means of Arya. So Arya means elitist. It means us. You see, the meaning us and the meaning elite are very related. Why? Because in an ancient society, you had the tribe itself. You had the chieftain and his, uh, you know, his brothers, nephews, and so on, and other elite people who hurried to marry a daughter off to the king so that that would be better for their social standing. And then you had the foreigners in the tribe. You see many people who were who had lost their family or fugitives or whatever, you see, who came to look for a job. Oh, please employ me as your janitor or so. And so they were less central to the tribe. They were less aria. And so in that sense, being part of the tribe itself correlates with being member of the upper class. And the lower class largely consisted of hangers-on of people who were not original in the tribe. But secondly, the uh, upper class meaning is fortified by another consideration, namely that Arya in the sense of Vedic also applied to the upper castes. You see, once the caste system took shape, it was the three upper castes that got a Vedic initiation that were Dvija wise born. So there also the meaning Vedic means well the upper castes are closer to the Vedas, they have the Vedic initiation the lower castes are not. And so the um, Buddha was very much an upper caste person and I'd say that he does deem the upper castes superior. Now, at that time, the caste system was not the frightful thing that outsiders imagine it to be, and that often it really was at the height of the caste system. Now, here we have to be precise about what history and other sciences have to say about caste. You see, in the Vedic age, there was no caste system. It is only at the fag end of the Vedas in a, in a hymn that is moreover often said to be interpolated from later that the four varnas are mentioned, that is to say the four layers, the four functions in society. But even there, there is no caste. Even though later they have often been, that verse has often been used as a justification of caste. Actually, it has no caste in it. It doesn't have a hereditary profession. It doesn't say how the castes are recruited. And it doesn't have endogamy. That is to say, it doesn't say that members of a particular caste have to intermarry within their own caste. So the two basic criteria that set a caste apart from any other social grouping are not there even in the uh, one hymn at, at the end of the video. So caste comes in later, and in fact, 
we shall see that in the Buddha's own lifetime, we see a crucial step within the evolution towards caste. Now, today we have genetics, and this has allowed the scientists to analyze the, uh, the composition of Hindu society. And what they find is that the division of Hindu society into box type different communities, which are the castes, dates back only to some 200 or so AD, so only 1800 years ago. And that before that, you see, this system started among the upper castes gradually. There it took hold, and then it was imitated by the lower castes. But so it took some time before it took hold. And in later Buddhists, like Dharmakirti, I think in 900 thereabouts, who was, of course, of Brahmin descent himself, like all the Buddhist philosophers, there you get sometimes serious polemics against the caste system. But at that time, the caste system is a very different animal from in the time of the Buddha himself. So the Buddha wasn't very concerned with this. And even then, even in Dharmakirti, you see, he polemicizes saying that whether somebody can attain nirvana is not dependent on his birth, which I think is a truism. That doesn't mean that they were abolitionist in practice. They didn't start campaigning for reservations or, you know, legislation against caste or whatever. You see, they didn't meddle in what society did. Okay, anyway, so back to the Buddha himself. What did he say about Arya in the sense of upper class? He said, you see, what the noble ones say is the truth, and what the lower people say is not the truth. You see, because the, the common folk don't understand. Their insight in the nature of reality is not such. And so it's the upper class people who can utter the noble truths. You see, he very explicitly links nobility to upper class. And he does it himself. You see, we have his own words for it. And he definitely links it to birth. You see, nowadays there are many reformist Hindus who say, oh no, caste had nothing to do with birth and so on. Well, for the Buddha, it did to some extent. You see, nobility are those people who are conceived in the womb of nobility. And so it's very much a hereditary thing. And um, therefore also uh, he thinks that the Buddha, that the, not just he, but people of his class, the Buddhas, have to be born in uh, the upper classes. The Buddha himself said that uh, the bodhisattvas, that is to say, those who are going on to become Buddhas, the, the, the Buddha to be, the would-be Buddha, they are not from pariahs, or what they say nowadays, Dalits. You see, <laughs> they are from the upper castes. And um, Buddhas only appear in the in among the Brahmins or among the Kshatriyas. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he says. So in fact far more explicitly 
then then I would have thought before I read this that it's not low cost. I mean, he says he's, he's a card makers, for example. You see, craftsmen and so on. They are they are good. They are necessary. They are capable and so on. But they are not the material of which Buddhas are made. Then um, about the future, you see, the Buddha at one time announces a future Buddha, who is called the Maitreya. And, you know, for, for many practicing Buddhists of the devotional type in later generations, this will become decentered. You see, they are living in expectation of the Maitreya. Once in a while in Buddhist societies, somebody gets up to say, I am the Maitreya. Just like in Christianity, there's every century or so somebody says, Oh, I am the returned Christ. Well, here you have the Maitreya. Like, for instance, the, um, Ming Dynasty in China was the result of a revolt against the preceding Mongol Dynasty by a group of Buddhists led by an ex-monk who was considered to be the Maitreya. Now, okay, so this Maitreya is quite a central figure in Buddhism. It's, of course, also a bit of a problem for all those who Think that the Buddha was very rational and so on. No, you find in the life of the Buddha miracles, stories, and so on. And so also these predictions, like this prediction of the Maitreya. Now, what does he say about the Maitreya? The Maitreya is going to be born in a Brahmin family. He is of good birth. So that's entirely consistent with his view that Buddhas should be not just anyone, they should be upper class persons. And this was also understood like that by his own generation. When he died, he was cremated, like uh, all Hindus, or most Hindus. And um, then there were eight different cities that laid claim on his ashes. So ultimately, the ashes were divided. Each claimant was given a, a bit. But the interesting thing is the argument they used. You see, they say, okay, we are Kshatriyas, and he was a Kshatriya, so we are entitled to his ashes. So, the fact that people remain casteist even after 35, no, 45 years of Buddhism in existence that supposedly militated against casteism, that is still humanly understandable. You know, there you can say, oh, the master was very big, he understood, but his pupils didn't understand that that typical formula could be applied here. But you see, in that case, they might have thought in secret, oh, yeah, our caste is great and is the same caste as his and so on, but they wouldn't have said it publicly. They would have used some other arguments to cover up what was really their concern. And yet, you see, after all these years of Buddhism, in full view, very explicitly, in a Buddhist context par excellence, namely the, the possession of the ashes of the Buddha himself, they say publicly, oh, it's because we are Kshatriyas. It's because of our caste. So again, you see, it is very unlikely that um, he was going beyond caste. And it is very unlikely that the word Arya had already 
made the transition from a sociological term to purely a moral term. You know, it's, it's, it's an evolution that has existed. You also see it in English. The word noble, nobility, originally refers to the upper class, to the earls and dukes and so on. And later it got the more general, characterial meaning, psychological meaning of magnanimous, beautiful, and so on. So that evolution took place in Sanskrit as well. But at the time of the Buddha, we were not yet that far. The, the word Arya still had its older uh, sociological meaning of upper class. In that context, of course, it will not be a surprise that the Buddha often refers to people as nobly born, as if that matters. Like, for example, in his uh, Seven Rules of Non-Decline, there is uh, one that refers to the duty to, to have respect for women. And so there you see, he comes to say, oh, women of noble birth are not molested, are not abducted and so on. But so he specifies nobly born. And, you know, that's, that's, that, that's repeatedly the case in his uh, discourse. And in fact, that, that counts for the Buddha himself. You can see the Buddhist writers are full of praise for the noble genealogical tree of which the Buddha is part. And so he's a straight descendant of Manu Vaivasvata and of the same family as Rama. And so to, to the Buddhists, apparently this was very important. They emphasize it all the time. And indeed, the Buddha himself also uh, prided himself on being a descendant of Rama as well as a reincarnation of Rama. So again, you see this, this whole past, this, this question where you come from was very important to him. Right now, this connection with Rama deserves to be emphasized. Strictly speaking, it's not that important, but you see nowadays they make it important. So in the Jatakas also, the, the, the birth story, the stories about the previous lives of the Buddha, it is said that, uh, well, there is in fact a retelling of the, a very brief retelling of the Ramayana about Rama and about uh, his father, uh, Dasharatha. And so, uh, that's, uh, that's where the Buddha situates himself. And, Therefore, when later Rama gets promoted to being a or an incarnation of Vishnu, this automatically applies to the Buddha as well. So the Buddha too is a incarnation of the same fellow of whom Rama is an incarnation, namely Vishnu. Apologies for calling Vishnu a fellow, but uh, okay. The interesting thing here is that this uh, Neo-Buddhism is very insistent on the Buddha not being an incarnation of Vishnu. Now, what does this mean, you see, to be an incarnation of Vishnu? You see, many devotional Hindus nowadays say, oh, but you see, the Rama was an incarnation of Vishnu. And then they discuss, was Balarama an incarnation of Vishnu? According to some Puranas, the brother of Krishna, namely Balarama, was also an incarnation of Vishnu. 
But others say, no, 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 he's off. Now it's the Buddha. The Buddha is an incarnation. Well, you see, all these quarrels are so senseless to me. All that this incarnation doctrine means is that Rama, Krishna, and arguably the Buddha had the same role as Vishnu within Hindu mythology. Namely, Brahma the creator, on the other hand, uh, Shiva the destroyer, but in the middle, Vishnu the maintainer. And so he maintains dharma. Whenever dharma starts uh, becoming weak, he restores dharma. And so what Krishna does, according to the writers about Krishna, the, the, the Mahabharata writers, he came to restore dharma. So he did what Vishnu does. And similarly, Rama, you see, he's besieged by Adharma in the form of Ravana and his uh, crimes. So he restores Dharma. And so, according to the um, later generation that knew the Buddha, Buddha also came to restore Dharma. So they were all incarnations of Vishnu. And so, you know, this is the the grown-up meaning of being an incarnation of Vishnu. You see, it's not some status, you see, at some point Vishnu up there uh, nominates on, oh, you are my incarnation. That's not how it goes. You know, it's just a figure of speaking. And according to that figure of speaking, yes, the Buddha can be considered an avatar of uh, Vishnu. Now, in 1956, when Dr. Ambedkar embraced Buddhism, he extracted from his uh, fellow converts, and I uh, put the word convert within quote marks, because in Hindu history there had never been the idea of a conversion of Hindus to Buddhism, just as there is no conversion of Hindus to Vedanta or to any other Sampradaya, any other sect within Hinduism. But so he borrowed this Christian notion of conversion to apply it to himself. So he converted to Buddhism and he extracted the promise not to see the Buddha as an avatar of Vishnu. Now, again, you see, if you study the meaning of this term, this is senseless. You see, if you conceive of someone with the characteristics of Vishnu, then you ought to also be able to see that the Buddha is more or less playing the role in human history of the Vishnu. Then in um, 1999, I think, that is uh, Mr. Goenka, who led the Vipassana movement, that is to say the mindfulness movement, the restoration of a specific meditation technique pioneered by the Buddha. Uh, so it's a big movement. They have these 10 day retreats. I did a few myself of intense practice of precisely that meditation technique. So he did a very good work. Nevertheless, he was a very dogmatic Buddhist separatist. And so he went to the Shankaracharya of Kanchipuram and extracted from him a promise that no, no, henceforth Hindus will no longer call the Buddha an incarnation of Vishnu. 
Now, I don't know the facts on the ground, whether it has had any impact at all on Hindu practice. I haven't seen it. But it is typical that he made that promise. You see, he was completely blown away by Goenkas or generally by the modern objection to this whole doctrine of Avatar or Vishnu and so on. And so, like always, it was a compromise. It was an agreement between Hindus and others in which Hindus gave everything and received nothing. So anyway, I mean, it's, it's interesting as a, as a fact of history, it should be mentioned, but it really doesn't mean anything. You see this, uh, notion of avatar of Vishnu, that's a way of speaking, just as it is a way of speaking about Rama or about Krishna, who are also just human beings, historical figures who did some, you know, who had some human adventures. And they were remarkable and they were a bit like Vishnu. And so later generations have extolled them to incarnation of Vishnu. As for the physical aspect, you see, the Buddha was described as tall and light skinned. So he was, in fact, like it or not, he was, in fact, an Aryan in the sense that European racists defined Aryan. And indeed, among the few, the handful of Nazi Indologists, he was quite popular. You see, there is this uh, book by uh, Sheldon Pollock, where it is argued that Nazis, National Socialism, is really applied Hinduism, more specifically applied Mimansa, which is, I mean, which is the most negative thing you can say about any religion anywhere or about anything anywhere. To say that it is responsible for Nazism. In present culture, this is the worst slur you can direct to anyone. So the strange thing is that those Nazis never talked about any Mimansa philosophers, not about Kumari Labhata or about, what's his name, uh, Jaimini or so. No, they always speak about the Buddha. You see, when they, when they think about India, the first one who comes to mind is the Buddha. And indeed, some of them had this uh, notion that uh, the Buddha was a, um, a typical Aryan invader, you know, really a descendant of Europeans who invaded into India. And that the Brahmins around him had compromised with the superstition and the primitiveness and so on of the Aboriginal ritualism, that the Buddha came to restore pure Aryanism. Mm -hmm. uh, so it fits well that he's described as tall and light skin. We, of course, are aware that the uh, Nazi use of the word Aryan is uh, very unhistorical and has little to do with the original meaning of the word Arya in Sanskrit. So we need not uh, go into this, uh, you know, historically rather bizarre and funny belief that is, of course, also now long gone. 
but it hints at another more realistic theory, namely that the Buddha was Iranian. You see, compared to the average people in Bihar where the Buddha grew up, Iranians are relatively tall and certainly far more light-skinned. There is another element that might point to an Iranian origin, namely their fierce endogamy. Endogamy in this case does not just mean that people marry within their caste. No, no, it means that people marry really close relatives. Like the Buddha himself had only four great-grandparents because his family was totally inbred. And so his, uh, his paternal grandfather was the brother of his uh, maternal grandmother and so on. So it was totally inbred. And that is a custom that is typical for the Iranians at the time. Incidentally, also for the Dravidians at the time. But it was forbidden for Brahmins. So in Brahminism, like in Roman Catholicism, you had these forbidden degrees of consanguinity. So you could not marry your sister, you could not marry your niece. And beyond that, I don't know the exact details, but at any rate, they absolutely wanted to marry you as far as possible from your own direct relatives. So that's not the case uh, for the Buddha. Now, the explanation given in Buddhist writings is that this was because the Shakya tribe were straight descendants of Manu Vayasotha, were very proud of their descendants, and they wanted to keep it pure. They didn't want any outsiders to soil their bloodstream. Now, possibly, this is a made-up explanation that has to hide the fact that they were practicing endogamy much against the Brahminical rules or conventions that existed in the area where they had settled. But that originally in the Iranian world, this was the normal thing to do, which they had kept up while moving to Bihar. Now this I'm only mentioning, this is a, an interesting curiosity. It's uh, an unexpected angle. And so it's, it's, I don't think it has much consequence. I mean, he may have been Iranian, who knows? They doesn't make him less Indian, of course. They were already for a number of generations in India. But yeah, who knows? So an interesting little afterthought. Now, as for the Buddha trying to reform caste, you see, suppose you start a religious movement and you think this is very important. Indeed, you see, for the Buddhism, for Buddhism or for the Buddha himself, it's uh, not a matter of life and death, but it is a matter of liberation versus suffering. So if you do Buddhism seriously, you reach Nirvana and you're rid of this sansara, this cycle of rebirths that, you know, plunge you 
ever again and again and again in this veil of tears. So would you then also try to reform society? I mean, society, after all, is part of this veil of tears. It can be organized better or, or less good, but at any rate, it will not relieve you from suffering. Because suffering for the Buddha is part of the human condition. Even if you are rich and wealthy and so on. And so he himself had started this princely life, kept away from all suffering as much as possible. So he knew for himself that all this luxury had not provided him relief from suffering. And so what social reform can do is at best giving everyone the kind of life that princes have. So you see, that would be perhaps nice, but it would not achieve the goal that he was going for namely liberation from suffering. So, of course, you see, he didn't spend his time trying to reform society. He focused on his own goal, which was meditation. This required that he remained friends with the powers that be in the society around him. You see, he was going to lead a social revolt, all the princes and so on, that were now in the real world financing his order and giving him all kinds of facilities for organization would then start to oppose him and then he could forget his life project of a, a network of monasteries where people would practice his dharma so of course he wasn't a social uh, reformer or revolutionary and you can see this in the career of Buddhism outside India. You see, in China, they ex accept the Chinese imperial centralistic bureaucracy. In Japan, they accept uh, the militaristic feudalism. And everywhere, they accept whatever is there. They also accept whatever religion is there. You see, they concentrate in monasteries and do their thing. But otherwise, they don't meddle in what is happening all around them. So, so that's what they do in India. They just accept uh, what exists around them. Oh, there's a, yeah, I gave a little anecdote here, a, a little exception where they do meddle in society. The third Dalai Lama was friends with the leaders of the Mongol society, where they practice sati. And so he convinced the Mongols to stop it. Okay, so that's 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 one case where they did interfere. But so generally they don't. Like Emperor Ashoka, who is always praised, you see, by the, the enemies of Hinduism as a sort of uh, role model of how to oppose Hinduism. Well, he did dare to uh, oppose certain existing mores like he imposed prohibitions on the slaughter of specific animals on specific days. But he did not abolish the caste system, or nor even try to. Right? So, if the Buddha wanted to abolish the caste system, then, um, then he badly failed. But there's no sign that he made any effort in that direction.
Next. Right. So um, I repeat. Wanting to found a better society is a distraction. You see, many people, all people try to satisfy their own desires, their own ambitions. Uh, and many of them succeed. Many of them even more probably don't succeed. But even if you succeed, that means that you invest a lot of your time and energy in other pursuits than the nirvana. Now, if you want to change society, that's a far, far, far bigger project than satisfying your own ambitions. So then you can completely forget about Buddhist practice. So he decided not to found the ideal society and instead to withdraw from society and concentrate on his path of meditation. Nevertheless, once in a while, he was called upon by the uh, nobles around him, who were often personally known to him. And then he did give us a little glimpse into his own ideas about politics and society. One field where he, he was very clear is his view about the um, relation between the sexes. Now, you see, there are many Indian secularists who are, of course, always rivaling with each other, outdoing each other in their extreme superficiality, in their extreme ignorance about religion. And so they are saying that the ugly, vicious Brahmins they prohibited all women from learning to read and write, and it is only the Buddha that gave them gender equality. So, you see, this is just hilariously wrong. First of all, he didn't want to allow a female wing in his monastic order. For that, he uh, gave the uh, prediction that if you allow nuns into the order, it will shorten its life uh, by half. He also said on some occasions specifically that monks will be completely distracted, you know, as soon as they see women. And indeed, you see, you have monastic orders in India where monks are literally not allowed to spend time with women, to be in one room with a woman. Hmm? And so the Buddha had that same extreme uh, idea. But nevertheless, he did give in when his own foster mother, you see, his own mother had died in childbirth, so he was raised by another woman. But you see, when she wanted to retire to a monastery, then he gave in. Because uh, he was also a bit of a nepotist. People close to him in the family somehow got more done from him than others could. Well, so he allowed a nunnery, but only on condition that the wisest, oldest, you see, most ascetic and so on, nun would be subordinate to the silliest, youngest, stupidest monk. Okay? I don't know, maybe that's how far he could go in those days, but at any rate, to hold him up as a model of modern feminism is just, just, just hilarious.
Indeed, you see, in um, in a few southern Buddhist countries, like uh, Thailand, they have actually abolished the nuns' order. And so it is now only in the modern age, under the influence of America mostly, that order for nuns has restarted. There are a few episodes in his life that give an idea of his attitude towards social questions. His uh, biggest failure probably is the massacre of his own tribe. You see, the Shakyas became the victims of the so-called Shakya Hatya, the massacre of the Shakyas. And the story behind it is this. King Prasenajit of Kosala, who was a friend of the Buddha, who had studied in um, Takshashila University. I mentioned it briefly just to uh, counter the neo-Buddhist propaganda that the Buddhists had invented the institution of the university. That's not true. The first university worldwide was the Vedic University of Takshashila. And so two of his friends, this Prasenajit and also General Bandhula, had studied there. Now this King uh, Prasenajit, he, um, he had a wife from the Shakyas. And at some point he repudiates her and the son that they have together. Now why is this? You see, at some point, as he was becoming more powerful, he thought he had reached the level where he deserved having a Shakya bride. You see, the Shakyas were a very prestigious tribe, supposedly descended straight from Manu. So he wanted the Shakya wife, and so he made the Shakyas understand, you see, I want to marry one of your princesses. And so the Shakyas consulted among themselves what to do. This was a dilemma for them because they, um, of course, wanted to remain friends with their powerful neighbor, the king of Kosala. But at the same time, well, they attached a lot of importance to their blood purity and they didn't want to um, throw away one of their daughters to this interloper who wasn't even a Shakya. And so as a compromise, they said, well, okay, you see, let's let him have a Shakya wife, but not one of our princesses. And so the president for life, the successor of the Buddha's own father. He had uh, some flings on the side and some children on the side. And so a daughter he had with a maidservant was really his daughter in a sense, of course, it was genuine. But um, she was then passed off as the, uh, the royal bride. And so Prasenaji takes her home and they have a son, Virudaka. And so far, so good. But so Virudaka in his teenage goes to a party thrown by his, uh, his maternal family. And 
it strikes him that he uh, is not treated as a um, a brother or a, a cousin should be by the youngsters of the Shakya leading families. You know, only the younger kids uh, greet him with all uh, pomp and circumstance because they they are they are duty bound to do this because of his age. He's older than them, but not necessarily because he's family of them. And so the the older ones don't greet him that way because they don't have to do it because of age. And because they don't want to do it, because he's not family of them. They know the real story. Now that puzzles him, but okay, he doesn't know. But then later that evening, the party is over, they go home. Then suddenly one of his assistants remembers that he has forgotten something. So he hurries back to the place of the party where they are taking everything down. And it's the late hours, you see, they're a bit drunk and so on, and so they're not guarded. And so he overhears them saying what the real story is. He also sees how the seat on which the prince has been sitting is being cleaned as if an untouchable has been sitting there. Okay, so he knows now the true story. Then the son Virud, Hakra confronts his father, you know, you know that I'm not a real Kshatriya. I'm I'm the, the grandson of a maid servant, you know, a paramour of of your um, father-in-law. So when Prasenajit hears this, he is shocked, and he repudiates his wife and their son. Now the Buddha hears of this, and what does he do? You see, if the Buddha was anti-caste, as people say, then this would have been the perfect opportunity to ridicule this whole caste business. You know, he would have said, you know, okay, this is the wife, you loved her so much all these years, and suddenly because of caste, you're going to repudiate her. What is this? Your son, you see, the, the dearest, you know, in, in your whole life, you're suddenly repudiating him because of some some caste story. That is not what he does. Instead, he impresses upon Virudhaka that, after all, he is a Kshatriya. And so his son is also a Kshatriya, automatically, regardless of what the wife or mother uh, is. And in fact, in that reasoning, even the wife is a Kshatriya because she's also the daughter of this uh, president for life of the Shakya Republic, who is a Kshatriya. And so even though the mother is a maidservant, the father at least is a Kshatriya, so the daughter will be a Kshatriya, right? Um, so what he does is he applies the old idea of caste. As I said, Caste in the Vedic age didn't exist. Then in the Mahabharata, we see it coming up. But it's still only in the paternal line. The most famous example is Veda Vyasa. Veda Vyasa is the son of the sage Parashara, who in modern terminology we would call a Brahmin. And so he conceives her 
on some some little adventure with this uh, this girl who ferries him across the river. And so the son born of that union is automatically seen as uh, a sage himself. He's the son of a sage. The mother is not a sage or from the class of sages, but nevertheless, that doesn't matter. He's the son of a sage. He's a sage himself. And indeed, he's celebrated by Hindus as a sage par excellence. Guru Purnima is Veda Vyasa Purnima. He's the guru par excellence. So at that time, there was no rule of endogamy, which is now defining for caste. So caste already existed, but in the paternal line, you were supposed to follow in the footsteps of your father, but the provenance of your mother didn't matter. So that's the system that the Buddha knew that was in vogue when he was young, and he defends that system. And so he says, according to that system, there is no problem. Stop worrying about the provenance of your wife, your son, and so on. This is all quite all right. But you see, the young son doesn't see it that way, because clearly by that time, at least in the, in the upper circles, the idea of endogamy has taken root. So the mother has to be of the same caste as the father. And then, um, so it, 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 I mean, he, the father takes them back. You see, he drops this repudiation, but the son isn't appeased. And so he plots a coup d'etat against his father, in which, by the way, the Buddha also plays a role. Because it is when Prasenajit consults with the Buddha that his charioteer waking outside but clearly supporting the ambitions of the, the young prince, takes the regalia of the uh, father back to the capital, gives it to the son who is promptly coronated. And so, so the father is out of power. And this happens on the Buddha's watch. You see the Buddha is sitting inside talking with Prasenadit, not aware that outside the uh, charioteer is uh, part of the plots against the father's uh, royal status. And so after Virudaka has taken power, he uh, sets out to massacre the Shakyas, which he does. And so the Buddha first tries to stop him, but then ultimately relents. And so the, the massacre actually takes place. At that time when that happens, the Buddha is tragically reduced to explaining to the monks what is happening. And so he uses this to explain the theory of karma. Namely, it's because of a past life. The Shakyas at that time were the villagers in some village during the hot season when the big river has uh, shrunken to a little rivulet and many of the fish are on the dry and they beg the villagers please throw us into that little water that remains and the villagers didn't do it they laughed at them and the buddha even gives a little detail 
he himself was a boy then and he took a stick and he hit the fish on their heads. And so therefore, says the Buddha, ex again explaining karma, that is why I now have a headache. You know, this is the karmic consequence of having <laughs> hit them on the head at the time. But of course, I am the Buddha. Therefore, for me, karma is not that serious. Whereas they, you see, they are getting massacred. And the story is not fully over because the soldiers then after accomplishing their mission go back home and they camp out on a riverside to sleep for the night but just then the hot season is over and the rainy season starts and the water overflows and all the soldiers are drowned and that's karma because in their past life they were the fish who were begging please throw us in the water and now they are being thrown in the water. That's karma. But so that's all very interesting. But in fact, it's a terrible failure, a tragic failure. That you see, after all this, this life of lofty teachings and so on, he has to, and this happens totally at the end of his life, he's 78 or so, to, to hear that, you know, his whole family, his whole people gets massacred. Right. And then there's another failure. I've put it here in some detail. I uh, won't uh, repeat it all, but, uh, you know, all the people who watch this, you can send this uh, to them. This is uh, another case where a politician asks him for political advice. And he is very political. The kingdom of Magadha, is also becoming rich and powerful. That's where the iron mines are situated. Even today, Jamshedpur, the steel city, is right there. And so iron was very much in demand. And so this country becomes rich and powerful. And so they um, want to expand. And they have their sights set on the neighboring Virji Republic which they want to annex. But you see King Ajata Shatru somehow finds that this is not succeeding. It seems that his Virgin Republic is very strong. Now what to do about this? Okay, so the troubleshooter, the Buddha, is expected to provide the answer. So the Prime Minister of Magadha goes there, goes to the Buddha, and says very explicitly what the idea is. Namely, we want to conquer the Virgin Republic. So what, you know, what can I do? So the Buddha knows that the object of the question, the target, the goal of the question is how to achieve Congress. You see, this, this peaceful and whatever positive Republic of the Virgins, we want to conquer it, we want to oppress them. Well, the Buddha doesn't say, oh, no, 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 I'm a pacifist. I don't want to do anything, have to do anything with conquest. No, no, you go ask someone else. Or he doesn't, he doesn't say, he doesn't give a sermon, you know, to this uh, Varsakara, that's his name. He doesn't give a sermon. No, no, you shouldn't 
you shouldn't conquer other countries. No, 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 he doesn't do that at all. He cooperates. And so he gives a very famous explanation known as the seven precepts of non-decline. Okay, he explains to Varshakara what a country must do in order to avoid decline, in order to remain strong. And so he explains that that is what I have told the Virgin Republic to do. And as long as they keep doing it, they are invincible. So uh, this is, uh, you know, here in the picture, you see the scene of uh, the favorite disciple of the Buddha, namely Ananda, who was, a, I think, a nephew, at any rate, a relative of the Buddha. He is um, fanning cool air during the hot season, still sitting next to the Buddha. And then on the other side is the uh, Prime Minister Vashakara. So the Buddha explains uh, there are seven rules that you have to follow, and then any decline will be averted. Okay, so the first one is unity. And so, uh, and then you get a rhetorical formula. You see, seven times in a row, he gives the whole same speech, but filling in a different virtue every time. So now it is unity. And so the Buddha asks Ananda, are the virtues united? Yes, they are united. Ah, as long as they remain united, they are far from decline. So unity is the first rule. That's, that's, I'd say, obvious. Then you see they have to take their decisions in harmony. Like you see here, he, he has clearly the uh, assembly of his own tribe in mind, where they have consultations. It's not the king taking some decision on a whim. No, no, they all consult. I mean, they, they all give their viewpoint. And so it is the wisdom of crowds that operates here you see many people give their opinion then you come closer and closer to a really well considered decision and so as long as they keep uh, taking decisions in harmony they are far from decline then they should follow the dharma the sanatana dharma they should keep on following it they should not trespass against it and so on as long as they do that, they are far from decline. Then they should revere their elders. And as long as they venerate and obey them and so on, they are far from decline. Then they should respect their women. You know, uh, women and girls of good family should be protected and treasured. They should not be abducted. The men should not covet other men's wives and so on. You see, in that whole field, you know, there should be peace and respect and so on. And as long as they do that, they are far from decline. Then the sacred sites have to be respected. And, and I mean, everything of uh, pilgrimages and religious festivals and so on have to be observed. You know, it's very important to, uh, to jointly have a sort of cultic practice and that, that strengthens the harmony and the fellow feeling and so on. And as long as they do that, they are far from decline. And finally, you should provide support and protection to the arhats, that is to say to all the holy men. 
when they are coming to your village, you should feed them, you should give them hospitality, and so on. And as long as you do that, far from the So these are the seven precepts of non-decline. The prime minister uh, understands, okay, this is it. And in fact, the, the way that he takes his leave suggests that he's not going to attack the Virgin Republic. Because he, he, he understands, okay, you see, as long as they do all this, they are invincible, right? So there's no point in attacking them. So apologists of the Buddha might say here, oh, perhaps the Buddha wasn't really in on a conspiracy to conquer because he thought that no conquest was going to take place. Which, of course, then has the drawback of saying that the Buddha was an ordinary human being who didn't see through the secret motivations of this prime minister. Yeah, well, at any rate, then he proceeds to conquer the Virgin Republic. So um, the sequel of the story is... Uh, so uh, then Varsakara leaves and leaves the Buddha with the impression that nothing is going to happen. But then, nevertheless, he himself hasn't forgotten his task this Rashakara, which is to weaken and ultimately conquer the Virgin Republic. So what does he do? He acts as if he is in favor of the Virtis. So the Magadha kingdom has a cabinet meeting where this Rashakara makes a big scene in favor of the Virgin Republic, saying against the king that we shouldn't attack. And he's fired. And a lot of publicity is given to this, so that even in the Virgin Republic they hear about it. So they think he's on their side and they hire him. And they make him the Minister of Education. Now that's a very influential place. We don't know how he uses the students to sow dissidents among the parents. There is a historical novel by Sitaram Goel where he tries to fill in imaginatively what exactly is happening. But at any rate, even he can't make the story end differently than it has done in history, which is that after a while, the assemblies are not attended anymore. People do not show unity, do not show solidarity, do not show observance of the laws and so on. Their lacks, their um, their their commitment to unity and so on to the seven precepts is not what it was, and so after a few years, this is after the death of the Buddha, they think the time is ripe to attack, and without too much difficulty, they conquer the Virgin Republic. Incidentally, it is possible that the Buddha didn't think anything of this; that he wasn't pro or contra that he saw this simply as part of the tamasha of human life, of the sansara, that ultimately there is nothing to do about this, uh, their suffering in the world, and that's the way of the world. We know at least that years later, there was an important conversation, which is sometimes cited in, in texts about Buddhist philosophy, between this same Ananda and the same Varsakara. 
where, uh, you know, items of Buddhist philosophy are discussed. So it seems that the Buddhist order, at any rate, didn't have anything against Varsakara because of this trick he played on them at the expense of the Virgilio. Okay, so um, what little do we know about the Buddha's view on society and politics? I think the, the, the few episodes we have that, that pertain to this are clear enough. So he is in favor of the system that he grew up in, which was a republic with some amount of uh, consultation, not a democracy in the modern sense, but still something more relaxed than an authoritarian system. What is very remarkable is that he advocated heartfelt care for traditions. You see, he was not a revolutionary at all, neither socially nor religiously. He wanted the existing moors, the existing traditions, the existing pilgrimages and religious festivals and so on to be continued. And these were, of course, inevitably mostly Vedic. He very, very, very rarely spoke out on social matters, but when he did, he turns out to be a sort of conservatism, conservative, very similar to his contemporary Confucius in China. And so the whole idea of Buddha as uh, setting society on its head, abolishing caste and so on, just, just not that's also a question we can ask. Uh, when he gave this advice about the seven precepts that make a state invincible, should we take this serious or not? You see, these seven rules are good. Undoubtedly, they are, they are a very good set of principles to follow. But do they make a state invincible? Now that's a question. You know, this this uh, reminds me of Mahatma Gandhi, who also had lofty ideals that didn't work in practice or that didn't have the desired effect in practice. Like, for example, he believed in soul force. You know, because of your soul force, you become invincible. He said that as Satyagrahi, you see somebody who follows his own system of nonviolence and so on, is invincible. No. That's not true. You see, some, some non-violent activists were killed. And indeed, his, his whole idea of uh, non-violent solution of political problems has uh, run into, has bumped into obstacles from the real world. You know, his, uh, his non-violent campaigns did not achieve independence. You know, that's, I mean, I will not go into the question of the role of the Second World War and of Netaji and so on, but it is uh, very flattering to say that his uh, nonviolence achieved independence. And when it bumped into a real enemy who was really ready to use force, namely Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who wanted to impose partition on India, then he failed. And so similarly, 
when the Buddha advocated these seven rules of non-decline, well, they're nice, they're good, but they failed in achieving the objective that he said, namely that the state of the Virgin Republic will be invincible. No, it turned out not to be invincible. So all these good things in this world, in this veil of tears, no matter how good they are vulnerable, they are susceptible to decline, then indeed ultimately that's what everything in this world does. So all his ideas about how to organize the world and society are interesting, are good, are lofty, but are relative. And so that's why he himself chose in his life to concentrate on nirvana and on the path that leads to it. So to conclude, you see, in this, uh, these historical aspects of the Buddha's life, uh, there is nothing that justifies this modern romantic utopian view of the Buddha as a social reformer. He accepts, and Buddhism throughout history has accepted, the social and religious mores of the reigning society. Like, okay, I'll, I'll give one more example, famous uh, or ludicrous one. When the communists had uh, conquered China in 1949, and then shortly after the Korean War began, then the Buddha, the Buddhists wanted to prove themselves towards the new Maoist regime by contributing to this war, you see, on the side of North Korea, namely by collecting money for a Buddhist airplane. You see, they wanted to give Chairman Mao uh, a military airplane as contribution to the war. I mean, just as a, a little example of how the Buddhists, like most people do, hurry to be in the good books of the reigning system. So, again, you see, if you want to practice Buddhism, then you have an interest in not being in conflict with the existing regime. Right. So, you, you can't accuse the Buddha of casteism. He didn't contribute to caste. Caste existed, or it was in full development. It existed only a little bit. It would become a lot worse later. But so that's not because of the Buddha. You know, Hindus have a way of blaming everyone else, saying that, you see, Sati was because of the Muslims and caste was because of the British and so on. No, 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 no. That's too easy. And so in the case of the Buddha, you see caste or fledgling caste system was very much part of the system that, that he belonged to. And he didn't add to it, but he didn't diminish it either. Right? That's in fact the main thing that I wanted to explain against uh, existing uh, misconceptions. Thank you. Vayam Tiwari asked this question that uh, Dr. Elster, you're using caste and class interchangeably. Are you saying caste in the ancient India was more about privilege and class strata? Well, caste is a specific case of class. 
is a cloud that is defined by uh, birth. And um, I, I know that the word caste is a bit problematic because it um, is not an Indian word. There are in India two terms that are often like interchangeably translated as caste, namely Jati and Varna. Jati is a birth group, quite literally, and you belong to it by birth. There are a few exceptions, especially in the case of intermarriage. If some foreigner marries someone, then effectively he becomes part of, of her caste. You know, has to do with uh, her relatives and so on and so on. Especially once they have children who are part of the caste and gets integrated, you know. And, uh, but, but more generally, you see 99.9% of people belong to the jati that they are born into. Then Varna is something else. Uh, jati is uh, of indeterminate number. Anyone or any group at least can become a jati, stopping to intermarry with all other groups. But Varna, there are four. And so they are the four layers of a developed society. In an absolutely primitive society, all everything that is done, all roles in society are interchangeable. Uh, everybody does his own plumbing and his own, you know, all the things that have to be done. But in any developed society, you get specialization. And so you get a uh, caste that does all the ideological and intellectual things. You have a caste that keeps order, that orders society, that defends society. Then you have a caste of entrepreneurs who make things uh, economically work. And then you have a servant class that helps the three first cl classes or, uh, into doing their thing. Now that Varna is not intrinsically hereditary or endogamous, and indeed in the Purusha Sukta of the Rigveda it is not, but so later it has become that. And for less than 2000 years, Hindu society has become very deeply endogamous and uh, signed by or marked by this hereditary profession. So that is part of the history of Hindu society. It's not at all intrinsic to Hinduism. It's very important to stress this. Many Christian missionaries and other enemies of Hinduism will try to portray this as intrinsic to Hinduism. So if you're against caste inequality, there's nothing you can do except abolishing Hinduism itself. That's their message. So that's definitely historically untrue. Some Hindus make a lot of fuss about my use of the word caste. They say, oh, it's a Portuguese word and so on. Yeah, true. But you see, I do not believe in the recent thesis of the untranslatability of Sanskrit terms especially not in this case. You see, caste for the Portuguese meant the situation in Portugal in the preceding centuries, which was that Muslims, who were at the time the ruling class in, in the Iberian Peninsula, and Christians and Jews were endogamous groups. 
You see, they strongly avoided uh, intermarriage. And so it is precisely that characteristic of endogamy that they had in mind when they reused the word caste for the situation they encountered in India. And that's quite correct, you see. You have a division in Hindu society into endogamous groups. So there is not much wrong with the word caste. You know, I mean, scholars, for the sake of precision, might insist on using the Sanskrit terms, but for ordinary usage, the word caste is really good enough. Thank you, Dr. Elst. Uh, the next question is from uh, Adityji. So, is it possible that the Buddha may be just stating about his likening to Sri Vishnu or Sri Ram, rather than it being of importance to him or him trying to emphasize it? Yeah, well, when you say him, of course, you always have to do the caution that all we know about the Buddha, we know through the Pali Canon, which is uh, three, four centuries younger than the Buddha himself. Now, that's a long time. You see, <laughs> I mean, many changes can, may have crept in, in between. You know, the, the, all we know about Muhammad is about 100 or 200 years younger than him. All we know about Jesus is uh, at the very least 50 years younger than him. And so there too, the scholars point out that many things have happened in the meantime that, that influences things. Like in the case of Christianity, for example, Jesus famously is asked by the Pharisees, uh, should you pay taxes to the emperor? Because you see, if he said yes, then he was a traitor to all the nationalists among the Jewish people. But if he said no, well, then he was preaching rebellion against the Roman Empire. And so that was a dilemma. And so he avoided it by saying, well, you know, show me, show me a coin or money. Okay. Well, you see, it shows, it shows, uh, it has a picture of the emperor on it. Well, okay. Then give to the emperor what belongs to the emperor and give to God what belongs to God. So that's a sort of enigmatic answer that can be interpreted both ways. But so it does not just emphatically not preach rebellion against the reigning situation. In fact, for the same reason as, as what counted for the Buddha, you should avoid conflict with the authorities because you then can't concentrate on your religious project. And so, you see, the question is here, in the year 70, there was a big Jewish revolt against the Romans, and the Christians had an interest in distancing themselves from that revolt. So probably, that phrase about, yeah, go on paying taxes to the emperor was added at that time in order to distance the Christians from the Jews and, and get closer to the Romans, make themselves more acceptable for the Romans who were in power. So you see all kinds of things may have crept in. There were, you know, emerging theological disputes about the Holy Trinity and so on. And so this also influenced the writing down of the information about the life of Jesus. So similarly, you see, and, and in these three or so centuries between the Buddha and the writing down, 
many things may have happened. Some of them historians know about. There are also others that we don't know about, that maybe we will never know about, and that nevertheless have influenced the writing. So when I say he, well, it's uh, always questionable. As it is told in Buddhist scripture, at any rate, he cared a lot about his uh, his uh, uh, kinship with Rama, and, and there is little doubt about that. So it's not that he said, yeah, it doesn't matter where I come from. No, no, he emphasizes that he's from the solar dynasty. So, you see, it's part of his discourse that uh, you know, the truth comes from noble people, from people of the nobility class. So he emphasized that he's, you know, among the nobility, he's really among the highest. I mean, even within the nobility, you have levels, like you have barons and, you know, earls and dukes and princes. And and so similarly, in India too, you see the, the, the descendants of Manu are really the cream of the crop. And so he emphasizes that. And so that's, that's part of his propaganda for Buddhism. You see, regardless of the very wise contents of his Buddhist teachings, you see, it is clearly very important for his audience that he's of good family. So that, that's something he regularly emphasizes. Thank you, Dr. Elst. Uh, the next question is also from Aditi. Uh, she asks, could the Buddha be by any chance uh, using the term Arya or noble to mean people who are of noble actions, uh, who perform the four noble truths, uh, I mean, who practice the four noble truths, and the four noble truths are a core part of his teachings, uh, and he gave it in different places across Bharat to different populations. So it seems he was referring to something other than the noble class itself, no? Other than the bit you mentioned about noble daughters in the previous uh, well, uh, what he says about uh, the, the noble class is that at any rate is there. So anything that I'm going to say next should not detract from that. But yes, within his own teachings, within his own yogic and ethical teachings, there, of course, the um, uh, social background becomes less and less important. Also in his monastery, you know, they are doing things that have nothing to do with the background. And they're all doing the same. They're all sitting down for meditation. And so nobody is uh, wielding the sword on the battlefield or uh, producing uh, or making jewels or whatever professions they did before. So there, you see, this, these social distinctions matter less and less, which is not typically Buddhist. In general, in Hindu Sampradayas, if you take sannyas, if you become a monk, you do your own funeral rituals. So it is like the, the, the lay person that you used to be dies. And so you get a new name and no longer your old family name, which as Hindus know is a caste title. I mean, you see, this is always quite hilarious. You see, when uh, Westerners get to know Indians who are called Sharma or Tiwari or so, you know, they, they don't know that that family name carries a whole story of where they fit in society, what part of India they come from, 
what caste they come from or what subcaste they come from. But so you drop that name when you become a monk. And so if you're called Yogananda or Vivekananda or so, in principle, nobody can see by that name where you come from. And so caste identity becomes unimportant once you join an order. And so that was the case with Buddhism too, but that's not typically Buddhist. Doctor, the next person is from Ramakrishnanji. In every society, ancient or modern, there are more or less glamorous professions. So could the Buddha's Arya or Eightfold Path, Ashtangika Mark, uh, the right livelihood rule specifically, have led to a formal downgrading of certain other professions like fowlers or butchers and strengthening and justifying any pre-existing caste prejudices? Well, in principle, yes. Uh, you see, um, right livelihood implies that there is also a wrong livelihood. And that is more true for some professions like butchers, for example. So you could, and probably the idea that there was a wrong livelihood already existed before. You see, he emphasizes that, but most of his precepts are not totally new. Like you see, if uh, in the Panchashila, that, that is the, the basis that every beginning Buddhist uh, promises. In fact, I myself, you see, I follow these Vipassana courses. And so at the beginning, I too have taken the oath of this Panchashila. So when you promise, you see, no stealing. Now, you know, obviously the Buddha was not the first one to say that stealing isn't okay. You see, Moses in the Ten Commandments says the same thing. And, you know, ethical precepts in societies the world over have said you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't kill and so on. So here to say that uh, working as a butcher is wrong livelihood is not entirely new, but nevertheless, yeah, you could say that within all the circles that, that respected the Buddha, yes, it confirmed that butchering or so was uh, not the best thing to do. Next question is, the Buddha's steadfast refusal to address metaphysical questions seems to be a literal application of the Vedic Nasadiya Sukta. Uh, maybe he knew it, maybe not. The original Sukta, on the other hand, seems to be an expression of awe, wonder and mystery. So was the Buddha literal-minded? He certainly reputed to be just the opposite. So he was certainly not a literalist reader of scriptures. He took the meaning and then applied it in practice. And so that's precisely what he emphasizes. He should not be um, be stopped by any metaphysical considerations. Forget about them. You see, come to come to practice. So uh, that's I mean that that that's that's one of the things that makes him so popular in the modern age. You see that he just uh, dispenses with all the metaphysics. So, Dr. Elst, we have a question from Dipanjaliji. Dipanjaliji asks, um, did the Buddha refer to Vedic text sources when he gave his talks and advocated compassion for all beings? Uh, because it is well known that uh, these are not his original ideas. Did he ever attribute his ideas to Vedic sources? No, he did not give uh, any footnotes in his discourses. 
And so there are some where he follows the Upanishads fairly literally, but it's only modern scholars who have identified the likenesses of his phrases and Yajna Valkya's phrases. So no, he never he never made that reference, not that I know of at any rate. The idea of compassion, yes, is not 100% original, though it gets an emphasis in Buddhism that you don't see anywhere else. A little remark that is, that is a, a bit of topic that might open up uh, a new uh, discussion, but I'll say it anyway. Some scholars have said that Buddhism has greatly influenced Christianity. And that you see, even though the career of Christ can only be understood within the Jewish context, that nevertheless, as he became a sort of popular preacher, he used a lot of the existing ideas, you see, ideas that were in the air. Uh, you could compare it a bit with uh, many of the modern gurus, like this uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. You see, he was a, he was a very lousy fellow, but he was a great intellectual. You see, he knew how to pick ideas from different traditions and make them palatable and, you know, repackage them for his, you know, Western or Western oriented audience. So that's what Jesus also did. Now it appears that Buddhist ideas were in the air in the Middle East. And so, as you remember, Ashoka sent missionaries everywhere. And so Buddhism ended up in China and then from there to Japan and so on. It ended up in Sri Lanka. Well, you see, it may have ended up also in West Asia. Only there, ultimately, the mission was not that successful. But still, some ideas, you know, hung there and were ripe for the, the taking by uh, inventive preachers like Jesus seems to have been. Or they may be uh, Buddhist words that put into Jesus' mouth by the, the gospel writers who wrote uh, 50 years later and, and who were often greater intellectuals than Jesus himself had been. You know, remember Jesus was a carpenter. So anyway, you see, there are a number of uh, biblical passages and they are as it happens, the most popular ones among modern Christians that seem to be taken from Buddhism. And, and some episodes also like Jesus walking on the water. There's a case where the Buddha walks on the water. Or uh, when Jesus said that um, if a rich man gives a gift in the temple, or a poor widow gives only, you know, a little penny, the little she has. It's the, it's the, this widow who has given a greater gift. Now you have some similar sermon in the case of the Buddha. And so it is those parts of the gospel where he becomes out uh, gentle and compassionate and so on that happen to be the most quotable parts of the gospel. So, you see, that may be ultimately due to the Buddha. And so the value in Christianity of charity may well owe something to this central Buddhist notion of compassion. Hey everyone. My question was in relation to what the Pantaliji's question was. 
that um, I'm just making a comment, but I would like you to comment, Dr. Els, about what I'm saying. Dipanjali ji, I was thinking that Buddha got his knowledge through his sadhana, much like other Hindu gurus. So it may not be about giving Vedic teachings as a reference in the same way that you do with the modern Western research, because Bodha Dharma falls within Sanatana Dharma. Mm-hmm. And he used his practices. So what are your views about that? Well, in the Vedas, you see a lot of quoting from the Veda. You know, there are verses from the Rig Veda that are repeated in the Tarva Veda, or in the, no, not in the, um, in the Yadur Veda. And then, uh, Vedic phrases literally, or just Vedic ideas, Vedic passages are are reused in the Upanishads. And so they don't, they never refer to this. I mean, if you take a, a modern edition of the Upanishads, you will find, for example, the uh, simile of the two birds sitting in a tree. One is eating the berries and the other one is just watching, you know, to illustrate the difference between householders, people participating in social life versus renunciates who merely look on us, who have withdrawn from society. Okay, now that passage is a, is a reuse of uh, an image that appears in the Vedic uh, hymn, the famous riddle hymn 1.164 by the seer Dirgal Tamas. Uh, so he already makes that, 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 uh, that com- comparison. So, you know, it's a normal thing in pre-modern days to reuse information in a way that nowadays academic uh, purists would call plagiarism. You see, so in, in pre-modern literature, plagiarism is all over the place. Uh, that's why, for instance, I am always hesitant to say oh you see as this person said in the past because he may not be the originator of it he may also have had that phrase from someone else someone who's forgotten someone whose name we don't know so uh i mean i don't i don't care about these questions of origin because after all the Buddha himself is very explicit about his non-originality. These modern scholars who recognize quite a few original things in his system, nevertheless, he himself emphasizes that he teaches nothing new, that he's just continuing. I mean, it's a river, you know. We are all part of it. And so it it comes from somewhere, and so the source is uh, beyond beyond our horizon. So, um, yeah, I mean, I accept that the Buddha may have been a genius and that he may have had some good ideas, but part of genius is also precisely to discern what are the good ideas among those that already exist. And so many of the ideas that he emphasizes, that he impresses upon his pupils, may have been older than him. And so in many cases they are. Like for instance, the, um, the, the poisonous role of desire that is already in the Upanishads. 
course, the value of meditation, the value of breath control within the process of meditation and so on. These are all older ideas, you know, very obviously. The Buddha himself learned uh, meditation from two teachers, uh, Alara Kalama and Ramaputra. And so those meditation techniques are still part of the Buddhist system. But he, he did go on. He did take it further. He developed a newer technique that supposedly uh, brought him to, to Nirvana. But these older techniques are still valid. They're still used in Buddhism. And so, and, and, and at any rate, you see the Buddhist writers, even after three, four hundred years, when Buddhism had become a somewhat self-contained system, uh, nevertheless are not uptight at all about hiding these origins. You know, they, they say very explicitly that he remained friends with those teachers. As soon as he found Nirvana, the first thing he wanted to do was to communicate his discovery to his old teachers. And I mean, they were all part of the same endeavor of, of spiritual growth, of going somewhere spiritually. And so that was not new. That was not new to the Buddha that existed all around him. Indeed, he, he starts out on his, uh, on his way that will bring him in six years at age 35 to Nirvana, when at age 29, he has these four meetings, and one of them is with a sadhu. So this system of sadhus seeking, seeking liberation, you see, seeking higher mental states, existed all around him. He very literally steps into footsteps that are already there. So this whole question of originality, it's it's interesting you see as scholars it's something you can study but it has no real importance in the sense that there is this endless river of spiritual wisdom the buddha was an important part of that but he was part of that the river existed already before him so the thing is that uh, the core buddhist account says that indra told uh, buddha to preach this doctrine to the world right Yes. But uh, I'm wondering if there are any goddesses mentioned as encouraging the Buddha. <laughs> well, yeah, that I don't know. You see, the story says that uh, it is, I think, Brahma and Indra together who asks the Buddha not to withdraw from the world. You see, after he has reached Nirvana, then you see, go on and preach it to the rest of mankind because it's so precious shouldn't get lost but i i'm not aware of any goddess saying that nevertheless goddesses do play a role in later buddhism like a, a few of the vedic goddesses have been taken by the buddhists all the way to 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 thailand or to japan and are still being worshipped there in buddhist temples you know especially i think of saraswati in Japanese, Benzai Ten. So uh, the whole system of Vedic gods has been transported to the rest of the world by the Buddhists, not by anyone else. 
It's not the ugly, evil Christian Brahmins who took Saraswati all the way to Japan. They never went there. So it's really the Buddhists who did this. Next question is from uh, Saurav Rohila. Uh, Dr. S, uh, he says that uh, Buddha or Karl Marx, this is a book by Ambedkar. Any reason why these anti-caste Ambedkarites don't read this? You see, Ambedkar was a socialist and was emphatically not a communist. So that's also another reason for, you know, traditionalist Hindus to tone down their, their wrath against Ambedkar. You see, Ambedkar was a fairly wise man. And um, so part of the reason is simply that he wanted something Indian. And again, I, I wouldn't take that too literal. It, it's not that he was against foreign influences. Like, for instance, he enshrined the French revolutionary slogan, Egalité, uh, uh, Liberty, Egalité, Fraternité, so uh, Liberty, Equality, Fraternity, or Freedom, Equality, and Brotherhood into the Indian Constitution. But nevertheless, you see, he emphatically said, okay, I have not converted to Christianity because I don't want to uh, help foreign, foreign intrusions into India. And uh, so the same thing with Marx. China has lost much of its culture because it embraced this foreign Marxist uh, ideology. And so that's, that's what, that's the nationalist reason why he prefers the Buddha. Um, then I have to say that is in my reading of Ambedkar is already 30 years old. So that's not so fresh anymore. My knowledge of these books, but, um, at any rate, the whole framework that Marx uses of class struggle is less appropriate to the specific Indian situation, which the Buddha was part. Now, of course, the Buddha functioned in an India of thousands of years ago. And so to what extent, you know, even, even the, the image of the Buddha that Ambedkar cultivates, uh, you know, Buddha being anti-caste, you know, even that is not the same thing, even if it were true, it was not the same thing in the society of 2,500 years ago. Uh, Though maybe Ambedkar didn't realize sufficiently the history of the caste system. The caste system was not always there. And indeed, he has his own scenario, which I think is historically untenable. But nevertheless, he has his own scenario for why the caste system came into being. He too does not say that the caste system always existed. So in a way, you see, he's is more lucid, more rational about the history of caste than, for instance, the Christian missionary, who insists that caste is a part of Hinduism and that there is no solution for caste except abolishing Hinduism. But uh, otherwise, I mean, you see, Marxism in his day was very much up for a view in communist China. And so all kinds of terrible things were happening there. And this was not what Ambedkar wanted. Uh, he thought, you see, India had a far more humane solution than Marxism-Leninism. 
And so, you know, that's that's one of the great parts of Ambedkar. You know, he was relatively discerning. You know, some of his ideas and so on are a bit obsolete, but on the whole, you see, he was he was one of the good guys. Absolutely. I guess another follow up question. I just want to clarify, uh, Doctor Els, that I did not mean did uh, Buddha when he speak give a citation. You know, that's not what I meant. Mm-hmm. I meant that when you when a, when a usually religious speaker talks, they say like if we're saying in Hindi, we'll say "Hamare shastro mein kaha hai," like it is said in our shastra, for example. Yeah. So yeah. is there any record of um, the Buddha having said anything like that, you know, to make a reference so that it connects more with people? Or is it that from the beginning he thought, okay, I'm just going to tell them this is all, we, we know all this, but I'm here to tell you something new, which in, which in which case he's very clear he wants to start a movement. That is why I asked the question of the citation, because everyone knows yeah. these things were there. There's actually nothing particularly original in that sense. That was what I meant, not so much. Oh, yeah, well... <laughs> I, I think there is a uh, caste background to this. Brahmins would offer um, references, you see, just like today academics offer references. But politicians don't. Or sometimes, depending on the audience, when they want to sound learned, they may say, you know, as this great fellow said, and then also without quoting the year or the page or so, just as that person said. So, you know, and in common talk, you know, these references are far more loose. And so, you know, common people give quotations all the time without knowing it or without knowing the source of the quotation. And so it's in that vein that the Buddha used to give speeches. I mean, after all, he was not trying to prove a point. You know, he was trying to say things that I, he thought were obvious. And so, you know, you didn't need the authority of some past sage who said this or so. You needed to use your own eyes. You know, the, what all that he said were facts of life that you could verify for yourself. So there, in that context, you see the exact reference was less important. But, of course, you see, the um, the Pali Canon is very large. Also, the later Sanskrit texts may, as they themselves claim, also have some tradition from the Buddha that didn't make it into the Pali Canon. And so there, too, you see, what I'm saying is it's a very large corpus, both the, the, the Pali texts and the Sanskrit texts. And so I may not have read them all or I may have forgotten important parts, not noticed certain parts, because at that time they were not important to me, whereas now they are. So there are big holes in my knowledge there. So you see, there may be, there may be passages where he did say it, but I'm not uh, offhand aware of it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Elst. Um, there's a question from Rajivji. So he says, in India, there is an internal exogamy within endogamy, that is, within the caste. One cannot marry a sagotra. Was the same system prevalent in Portugal and Europe? This being the case, can caste still be translated for jati? Well, that has to do with the gotra system. That is definitely, that, that, to my knowledge, doesn't has never existed in Europe. Right? 
but so that's not what is referred to when the word caste is used. So the fact that the, the word caste is relatively acceptable, that stands. You know, that the phenomenon that they are referring to, namely endogamy, that really exists in India and that really is what was meant with the word caste. This is a follow-up to Deepanjali's question. So if he does not explicitly cite does he at least does he do the other thing that is passing off his original innovations as something that has anciently existed? For instance, many people will compose something and say it is attributed to Shankaracharya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that mm, phenomenon happen? I don't think so. You see, he says in general that I am only walking the path that the ancient Buddha Buddhas walked. But any specific reference to an ancient Buddha, no, that he, that he doesn't do. Just like uh, Mahavira Jina also explicitly is part of the path of the Tirthankaras and his parents apparently were already followers of his predecessor Parshvanath, but uh, he also gives you know the things that he sees or that he understands whether these ideas are um, part of what he learned or part of what he himself discovered that he doesn't normally say um so no uh, no, no 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 specific references but a general recognition that this is not original or this need not be original these ideas are general and so people in the past who were puzzled by the same questions that i have investigated would have come to similar insights so uh you know you can of course say specifically the buddha was original in the sense that some ideas that he gave cannot be identified specifically with any earlier writer but you see quite uh, in general he saw them as available to earlier generations so you know there i think you simply have the uh, openness to uh, to accept that some ideas may be his own some may not and the border between them is not always clear and need not be. You see, it's a question that the, the Buddha, the Buddhists themselves don't care about. You see, scholars may care about them and it's part of their job to investigate this. But for the ultimate goal of Buddhism, they are unimportant.